Let's open in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10 and verses 16 through to the end of the chapter. It's always helpful uh, on these Sundays when we open up to Matthew's gospel to remind ourselves that the theme of this gospel is the king and his kingdom. Jesus is the king and he has come to bring the kingdom of heaven to bear upon this world. And I think this morning it's especially important that we get that in our heads because I want to just tell you at the outset that some of the things that you're going to hear from this pulpit, if not said by the Lord and King of the universe, are the most outrageous things ever uttered in human history. If Jesus isn't God in the flesh, if He isn't the King, if He isn't the Lord, then what we are about to read is absolutely outrageous. And so I want to encourage you, if you're not in the habit of opening up a Bible and following along in the passage as we make our way through it, you'll especially want to do that this morning so that you can see that the words that I'm reading aren't being made up by me, but these are the words of Jesus the King. Matthew chapter 10 verses 16 through to the end of the chapter. I want to just read the passage for us in its entirety and we'll allow the weight of His words to fall upon us. Chapter 10 and verse 16. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, Do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? 
Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. All right. This is the word of our Lord. Let's pray. Father, even in simply reading out these words of Jesus, we feel the weight, we feel the seriousness, we feel the gravity of what He speaks. And it's our prayer this morning that You would give each of us here eyes to see and ears to hear so that we would be transformed. Lord, we pray that You would lay the cost of discipleship before us and that we would count the cost and do so wisely. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I've found in life and experience that there's something very powerful about an opening sentence well written. Uh, Some of you will be cultured and artsy, and so these words will be easy to identify two households, both alike in dignity and fair Verona, where we lay our scene from ancient grudge break to new mutiny, where civil blood makes civil hands unclean. William Shakespeare, Romeo and Juliet. At least some of us would be able to answer this question on Jeopardy. From which book does this line come? Call me Ishmael, Herman Melville, and Moby Dick. If we couldn't get that one, we're certain to get this one. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Charles Dickens, A Tale of Two Cities. Or if you're simple like I am, in a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit. The Hobbit by J.R.R. Tolkien. 
my absolute favorite opening sentence in any of the Christian books that I have read throughout my studies and my ministry and my Christian life comes in J.I. Packer's classic work, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. He just sort of lays it all out for us at the very outset when he says, always and everywhere, the servants of Christ are under orders to evangelize. Always and everywhere, the servants of Christ are under orders to evangelize. When I first read that, it struck me so that I, I, I knew I had to keep that page marked and pull that out from time to time to remind myself of how absolutely necessary evangelism is. But the reason that I bring it up this morning is because I think it's a worthy transition into the second half of what we've called Jesus' Sermon on the Mission in Matthew chapter 10. If you remember from last week, we mentioned that there were a lot of things that Jesus said to the apostles that applied only to them as apostles. For instance, the call only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel in chapter 10, verse 6. But here in our text, we see the influence of their mission spreading even to kings and governors and the Gentiles. So Jesus is instructing his apostles beyond the immediate mission that they're about to go on. What we have in this text is far more readily applicable to you and to me as disciples of Jesus in our call to mission. Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples. That is a commission that is given always and everywhere to the servants of Christ. We are under orders to evangelize. But what Jesus says here in this second half of the Sermon on the Mission is difficult. I want to just be open and honest about that at the front end. This is a difficult passage. This is a difficult sermon, certainly to preach, definitely to hear. Because what Jesus does in this passage is He explains that the mission itself is difficult while commanding us regarding how it must be accomplished. And before we even get into the text, I want to say simply that none of this that Jesus says, none of it is fine print. You know how the fine print works. It's on the contract and you read it after you've already signed up. There is no sense in which what Jesus says here is to be reserved until someone has made a quote-unquote decision and then we say, well, congratulations, this is going to really be difficult. No, this is part of counting the cost of what it means to follow Jesus in the first place. And this is absolutely serious. Now, I want to give us just three words to hang all of our thoughts on as we make our way through this very large portion of Scripture. You should understand we can't go into detail about every verse. We're going to get the big idea of this second half of the sermon. We're going to do so under three headings. Number one, persecution. Persecution, verses 16 to 25. Number two, fear, verses 26 to 33. And number three, swords, verses 34 through 42. Persecution, fear, swords. Difficult message from the Lord Jesus. Number one, persecution. I believe that the 
theme of this second half of the sermon on the mission is found in verse 16. Look at what Jesus says to the apostles. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. That's quite a bit of animals, isn't it? You put them all in one pen and see what happens. But that's exactly what Jesus does. He says, behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. We are very accustomed to the imagery of the Lord being a shepherd, the good shepherd, Psalm 23, who leads us beside still waters and nourishes our souls. But I want you to just notice here in what Jesus says, not only does the good shepherd draw us to himself to care for us, But then the Good Shepherd sends us out into the midst of ravenous wolves. That's part of His shepherding. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. That is, I'm sending you out into hostile enemy territory where you will be ravaged, you will be attacked, you will be bitten, you will be opposed. That is what it means to be a Christian in this world. That does not mean that we go out searching for problems. It means the problems have a way of finding us if we truly belong to Jesus. Somewhere along the line, we we fell prey to this notion that the world is just simply waiting, waiting for someone to finally come and preach the Gospel to them. And the harvest is plentiful. That's true. But here the world is pictured as, as an opposing force to the Christian. Wolves. The imagery is clear. What Jesus is beginning to do is He's promising, yes, promising persecution for those who belong to Him. Promising. This is a call for wisdom. Sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. That imagery of a serpent, Genesis 3. Serpents are cunning, they're crafty, they're winsome, they're evil. The imagery of doves, they are innocent, they are pure, they aren't all that bright. Jesus says you have to hold the two of these images in tension. You must be as wise as a serpent and as innocent as a dove. Or as I call it, you must have Christ-honoring, righteous street smarts. That's what it means to be a Christian. Having the street smarts and the ability to minister the Gospel to various people in various places who are hostile to your message while all the while maintaining righteousness, purity, obedience to Jesus. That's the call. And that is the call in the face of persecution. I mean, just look at the balance of this paragraph. How am I to be wise as I'm being sent out as a sheep among wolves. Number one, beware of men. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. In the Jewish culture, the synagogues were the place where justice was administered. The Apostle Paul, on multiple occasions in his ministry, was given the 40 lashes minus one. In the synagogue as a consequence for following Jesus faithfully and proclaiming the Gospel. 
And as the ministry of the Gospel expands beyond just ancient Israel, we have Jesus picturing His followers not only being delivered up to, court, or to the synagogues, but to courts and to governors and kings. These are promises. And it's a promise that warrants in the ability for the people of God to speak truth to power. Is that a phrase that our culture has latched onto? Speaking truth to power? Look at the way that Jesus' pictures are being delivered up to authorities. You're being delivered up, Jesus says, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Everything in our Christian lives, everything is about Jesus. Even our persecution is about Jesus. When they deliver you over, he says, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. It's become almost a trope in movies that depict, especially high school students, think valedictorian or something of that nature who has to come and, and give a speech and they come out to the podium and they've got their, their manuscript and they begin to read their manuscript and they're welcomed by some yawns and eye rolling and so they chuck the whole thing and they speak from the heart and they save the universe or whatever else and it's just a riveting, rousing celebration, right? But notice that's not what Jesus says here. He says in that very moment you won't even know what to speak, but you're, you, you will speak on behalf of the Spirit of your Father. The Holy Spirit will speak through you. This is all about Jesus and giving testimony to Him. Verse 21, look at how divisive, if you will, Jesus can be. Brother will deliver brother over to death. The father his child. Children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all. You will be hated by all for My name's sake. The question I want to ask is, when was the last time at an evangelistic crusade you heard the preacher say honestly, if you trust in Jesus today, and you should, understand you will be hated by all. Because that's what the Bible says. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. This is a promise. You can see that. There is a promise of persecution to the man or the woman who follows Jesus in faith on the mission that He has given to His people. And if this isn't a promise enough for you, Paul will go on to say in 2 Timothy chapter 3, indeed all, all, everyone, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's not a surprise. It's not abnormal. My fear, my, my concern is that the biggest challenge facing the American church today is cultural Christianity. A form of Christianity that wants to bear the name of Jesus, but not the rejection of Jesus. My question to you is, is that even possible? Is it possible to bear the name of Jesus without bearing the rejection that is bound up in who Jesus is? No. 
Look at what Jesus says in verse 24. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, that's Lord of the Flies, Jewish designation for Satan, Jesus says, if they have called me Satan, and you have aligned yourself with me, what do you expect that they will call you? Count the cost. That's what Jesus is saying. Count the cost. How will this mission be accomplished? It will be accomplished via persecution. So count the cost. Persecution is promised to those who follow Jesus. Again, this is not fine print. This is up front. Number two, fear. We've had persecution and we have fear, verse 26. Now, you might imagine, and, and it would be fair to imagine this, that given all that Jesus has just said about persecution and being hated and being delivered over, that we would cower in fear. That this would be a preventative to mission. But Jesus is propelling us out into mission. Seems counterintuitive. But look what he says in verse 26 about fear. Have no fear of them. They will oppose you. They will deliver you up. But have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be Known. Why shouldn't I fear? Because everything will be made known. It's also a trope in film that there's always this sort of enemy or bad guy who's sort of incognito. And it isn't until the end of the movie when someone's recorded their plans on a phone conversation, they've bugged the line or something, that finally all is made known. And what Jesus is saying is that on that day, those who oppose God by opposing His people, on that day, God will simply press play on the tape recorder and all will be made known. His people will be vindicated. Glorified even. So do not be afraid. Jesus says, what I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Preach. Preach the good news of this Gospel everywhere and to everyone indiscriminately. That's our call. But the point that I really want to make about fear and the point that comes out so powerfully here and what Jesus says about fear is this. What you fear the most controls you. If I'm convinced that the biggest threat to American Christianity is cultural Christianity, what I'm convinced is the biggest threat to our witness is fear. We're shook. We're just shook. We're afraid of what Jesus promised would happen. But what I fear the most controls me. Let me explain. You all know it's well documented how afraid I am of heights. I hate heights. So about 15 years ago, Kelly and I weren't married yet. We may have been engaged. I can't, I can't remember uh, off the top of my head, but we took a youth group to Cedar Point. Perfect place for me, Cedar Point. And so, you know, I've got two competing fears. I'm afraid of heights. I'm also afraid of looking like a coward in front of high school kids. And so, you know, I can pretend like I'm 
courageous and pretend like I'm tough to a certain point. I get on the Raptor. Great. That was fun, kind of. The Magnum used to be the biggest roller coaster at the park, maybe in the world. No problem. I'll sit in the front car, hold on real tight. But you know when everything changed? When Kelly and I got on the Millennium Force, and that seatbelt came down, and I'm looking at the high school kids going, yeah, I'm pretty tough, but I'm also looking at that hill and the angle at which I have to travel up that hill and the lack of barrier off the sides of the train. And I said, man, I got, you got to take this seatbelt off me right now. Time out, time out. Where's the guy? Come on, come on, let me out. Why? Because there's just a certain point where my fear of heights is going to overrule my fear of nearly anything else. Isn't that what Jesus is saying here? About fear. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear Him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. See, listen, it's like this. If I'm more afraid of the person in front of me, if I'm more afraid about losing my reputation, if I'm more afraid about losing my standing in society than I am of the living God, then I'm going to stay quiet. Perfect sense. But, if I fear with childlike, reverential awe, the living God who has given His Son for me to save me from death and from hell and from sin if I fear Him. There's going to be a point which I just can't afford not to preach. I'm convinced that half of the reason we don't share Jesus is we're just shook. We fear the wrong things, the wrong people. And loved ones, let me, just, let me just tell you that this is only going to become more real for us week by week by week. Gone. Understand me. Gone are the days when a nice, pleasant, clean-cut, moral family from Nishanik is going to come in here in order to gain standing in the community. It's gone. Because you know what happens to that nice, clean-cut, moral family from Nishanik when they identify with Jesus? They don't gain standing in society. They lose it. as the temperature continues to be turned up, especially around the issues of human sexuality, this is only going to to become more and more real. What do I fear? I will lose standing reputation for Christ if I fear God the most. Fear. Fear. Look at the cost of this. I just want to point this out. I don't want to go over, but look at verse 32. Let's look at the Bible. There is a cost associated to this, a very real, eternal cost associated to this. So everyone, Jesus says, 
who acknowledges Me before men, I also will acknowledge before My Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies Me before men, I also will deny before My Father who is in heaven. Jesus is not playing around. Fear. Thirdly, swords. Your Sean Connery's S words. Swords. I don't think that if you were writing an email to a Christian friend and you're going to put a verse at the bottom, a nice little sign off, I don't think you put verse 34. Do not think, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Who says that? What kind of maniac says that? What kind of madman says that? Well, he's not a maniac or a madman. He's the prince of peace. And yet he says, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. In other words, Jesus necessarily divides humanity into those who trust Him and those who oppose Him. It's that simple. It is that black and white. He says, I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. He's quoting there from Micah chapter 7, verse 6. The days in Jerusalem were so bad that the people were opposed and split even down their household lines. And Jesus says, I came to usher that in. This is how serious I am about you will be hated. Divide households. Divide families. Some of us, some of us have felt the, the, the sting and the burden of this. Some of our Roman Catholic friends who have trusted in Christ have experienced this deeply. But look, God, Jesus puts it down. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. The people listening to Jesus, they know exactly what he means. The cross, it's an instrument of death. You see a man put a cross on his back, it's dead man walking. Life is over. And Jesus is saying to, to follow Him, to be worthy of Him, to really actually, truly trust Him is to place a cross upon my back and die to myself daily. Do you see the death blow that this issues towards cultural Christianity? In his commentary on this text, D.A. Carson writes this, he says, the church needs to hear and proclaim this message afresh. Today, we are bombarded with endless pseudo-Christian books to help us to become happy, content, resourceful, spiritual, successful, effective, creative, and even when these words convey considerable insight, that is, even when these sorts of ideas have a few Bible verses attached to them, 
The basic appeal is far too often and far too deeply to self-interest. Covered over with the garnish of spiritual language. But the core truth is far simpler. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You tell me if I'm wrong. You tell me if that fancy preacher on Instagram with the expensive shoes, you tell me if he's telling you whoever loses his life will find it. You tell me if that pretty woman with the best-selling books who's nothing more than a simple life coach ever tells you, you must take up your cross and follow Jesus. You tell me if I'm wrong. My mentor in the ministry used to always say when he preaches, and, and some of you listen to him still and you'll know this, he'll always say, you know, you're reasonable people. You, you, you look for yourself. And I say to you, you're reasonable people. What does the Bible say? What does God's Word say? Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. It's probably enough by way of walking through the text. The burden is heavy. Because we... We are calling people not simply to make decisions. We're calling people to be disciples. To take the Lord Jesus Christ seriously. To follow Him. To worship Him as God. And my encouragement to each and every one of us this morning is to count the cost. Count the cost cost. Listen. Jesus calls us to Himself. He sends us out on mission and He tells us how the mission is going to be accomplished. It's going to be accomplished through persecution. It's going to be accomplished without fear. It's going to be accomplished with the sword swinging all over the place. That's how it happens. You've got to count the cost. Is this the Jesus that I follow? Is this the Gospel that I understand and believe that Jesus has given me everything freely? Yes. Free forgiveness. Free grace. Eternal life. Adoption as sons and daughters. Completely free and without charge. And yet, yet, it costs me absolutely everything. It's a beautiful paradox. It costs me even valuing any of my human relationships above Him. You know, we do the Baptist catechism at home. If I ask Henry right now, question one, who is the first and best of beings? He will tell you, God is the first and best of beings. I asked him this morning, better than Daddy? Yes. Better than Mommy? Yes. Better even than Grandma? I was a little iffy on that one. Yes. Best. Most worthy. Count the cost. Am I willing to give up myself, my comfort, my identity, my social status to follow this Jesus? If yes, then you're soundly and truly converted. If no, you better pray that we're not self-deceived. If 
But not only, listen, th- th- this is where we'll close, not only do I, I want you to count the cost of what it, will, what it will actually mean for you to follow Jesus, I want you to count the cost, and I get this again from D.A. Carson, I want you to count the cost of what it will, what it will actually cost you not to follow Jesus. There's a price to be paid either way. I give up all for the sake of Christ and the free forgiveness that He offers me now? Or I pay the price of my own sin and rejection of Jesus then? There's a price to be paid, and each and every one of you will have to budget accordingly. Which price are you willing to pay? And listen, even though Jesus places this high cost on following Him, this is what it will cost you. Listen to what He'll go on to say in Matthew chapter 13. He says in verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. Which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, did you hear that? Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has. He joyfully gives up everything and buys that field. From one perspective, the cost is so great. And from the the perspective of the converted believer, man, giving up everything for Jesus is the biggest steal I will ever encounter in my life. Count the cost. Let's pray. Lord, that was hard. There is a a sharp edge to the words of Jesus. We're not surprised you tell us that the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, I, I pray and we pray that in the moments to follow that You would quiet each of our hearts, that we wouldn't be thinking about anyone other than ourselves, and that we would ask ourselves the penetrating question, am I I a cultural Christian? Am I willing to bear the rejection of Jesus because of all that He's done for me? Am I willing to be like that man who not out of fanaticism, but just out of genuine discipleship and joy, sold everything to buy the field. Can I say that all I have is Christ?
and that if all I have is Christ, all I have is all I need. Am I willing to openly and freely identify myself with a suffering Savior? Am I willing to confess before men and women that I believe a message that is foolishness to Greeks and a stumbling block to Jews? Am I willing to spend everything, to give everything, to die to myself, to gain a pearl of great price? Lord, help us to answer those questions honestly in our hearts. And if indeed we answer no to any of them, Lord, we, we pray that you draw us to yourself right now. That we might truly belong to you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.